Good morning, everyone. It's my joy to worship with you today, and it's my pleasure and privilege to open God's Word for you. We're back in the Gospel of Mark, and specifically, we're in Mark chapter 4. Mark chapter 4, verses 1 through 20. Mark chapter 4, verses 1 through 20. We've been seeing a number of trends in the Gospel of Mark as we've worked our way through it. Amongst those, we've seen Jesus preaching and doing many miracles, miracles of a wide variety. And both his preaching and his miracles have been pointing to who he is. And we've been talking about how this is the most important question. Who is Jesus? And this is the main theme, arguably, of the Gospel of Mark. Who is Jesus? And we've been seeing that his preaching and his miracles point to the fact that he is the promised Messiah, the one come to save sinners, the Son of God, the true King. Indeed, God, very God. And we've also seen Jesus' popularity has skyrocketed. It's skyrocketed. And masses and masses of people have been coming to see him, clamoring to be around him. Some are responding to him in faith, no doubt. Some are recognizing that he is who he is, the Messiah, the King, God, very God. But many others are coming to him for his miracles, whether to receive healing or deliverance from demonic oppression or to receive a miracle for a loved one. And then many others are just coming for the sheer fascination of the spectacle to see the show. And we've been seeing others giving Jesus a lot of attention because they don't like what he's teaching. They are strongly opposed to him. And even as Jesus' general popularity has been growing and growing, the opposition against him has been steadily increasing. We saw things escalate in Mark 3 verse 6 to the point of the Pharisees and Herodians conspiring together about how they might, the text says, destroy him. Destroy him. This isn't mild opposition. They are adamantly, strongly against him. In Mark 3.22, we saw some scribes had come down from Jerusalem, the text says, and they'd come to make accusations against Jesus. It seems that they had come down from Jerusalem as kind of a special delegation to make the official position on Jesus known, to make sure that the crowds following Jesus knew how strongly the religious leaders of the land disagreed with Jesus and disapproved of him. And Jesus' miracles were so clearly real and supernatural 
that even as these scribes were seeking to oppose Jesus and to uh, have, the, have the crowds uh, reject him and, and, and not trust him, they couldn't try, they couldn't even begin to try to deny his miracles. Instead, the best they could do was to acknowledge the supernatural power behind what Jesus was doing, but to try and say that it was all coming from Satan. The evidence before them clearly pointed them to who Jesus truly is, but they refused to see it, and in their stubborn unbelief, they denied that Jesus is the Messiah sent by God to save sinners. And this, we saw, is the one unforgivable sin. Because if someone will not see who Jesus is, then they can't embrace Him as Savior. And they can't go to Him in faith for the forgiveness of their sins. That brings us now to chapter 4, verse 1. Follow along with me as I read, please. Again, he, that's Jesus, began to teach beside the sea. And a very large crowd gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea. And the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. So once again here, there's no shortage of interest in Jesus. Our text tells us that a very large crowd has gathered once again around him. And once again, we see that Jesus has had to get into a boat to preach from the boat. We saw earlier in the book of Mark that Jesus had to do that to keep the crowds from pressing in on him. To just give him a little bit of space to be able to preach freely without people fighting each other to get to him. And it seems that's the case here again. Jesus gets in the boat. They push the boat out a little bit from the shore. They're still close enough to be heard. But anybody needs to wade into the water and climb into the boat to try and get to him. That gives them a buffer zone to now be able to preach freely. Verse 2. And he was teaching them many things in parables. And in his teaching he said to them, Listen. Behold, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground, where it did not have much soil. And immediately it sprang up, since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched. And since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into good soil, and produced grain, growing up and increasing, and yielding thirtyfold, and sixtyfold, and a hundredfold. And he said, He who has ears to hear, 
let him hear. So in this parable, a farmer is sowing seed for a grain crop. Sowing seed to grow grain. He's basically walking and as he walks along, he's scattering seed around as he goes. But as much seed as he scatters around, very little of it actually takes root in any kind of lasting way. Three quarters of the seed he scatters does not last. That, of course, is very discouraging if that's what we focus on. Three quarters of the seed doesn't take root in any lasting way. But that is not how the parable ends. The final one quarter seed does take root and it grows up and it thrives and it produces a massive crop. A massive crop. See, up to this point in the parable, the story described would have been pretty normal in the ears of the hearers of the day. Jesus was describing very normal farming conditions that the people would have been very familiar with. But then when he gets to the size of the crop, 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold, this would have been absolutely unheard of. You see, even a harvest tenfold, even to get ten times the grain back, uh, ten times the amount of seed that you sowed, that would have been an amazing harvest. And we're talking about three times that, six times that, ten times that. It would have been absolutely unheard of. So, as we consider Jesus' ministry, we've seen him, right? Teaching far and wide, scattering seed to hundreds of people. But out of those many people, right, we've just been talking about how a good number of them are not truly there for Jesus. They're there for the miracles, they're there for the spectacle. And a growing number, of course, are in opposition to him. We could focus on that. We could be discouraged by that. But the one quarter or so of the people coming to him, a minority, sure, but at least some of the people coming to him do truly receive his word do embrace him by faith and will go on to produce a truly amazing, shockingly fruitful harvest. Honestly, brothers and sisters, here today, we're proof of that. I mean, think about this. 2,000 years ago, half a world away, Jesus is standing in a boat talking to people on the shore. And now I'm telling you about that 2,000 years later at the tip of Africa. God has done amazing things through the original hearers of these parables. 
God has gone on to do amazing things through the few out of the masses who did respond in faith, who did go on and share about Jesus to others. He has produced a harvest 30, 60, 100 fold. That's our first takeaway from this parable. It may be discouraging. I, I, I know for sure. <laughs> I know for sure. This is my least favorite aspect of being a pastor. I've shared with you guys in the past, right? The discouragement, the heartache when you see people who you were hopeful about giving up on the Lord, turning away from Him, not persevering. It is discouraging. But this parable tells us that it's normal. It's normal. It's normal that many who hear the word will not respond to it in a lasting way. And praise God, it's also true that because of how he works, that small percentage that does respond in faith, that does truly put down roots and last, God will do amazing things through those few. The kingdom will advance despite all the challenges to it. The church will go forward. Oh, sorry, the gospel will go forward and Jesus will build his church. That has to be an encouragement to us to keep sharing the gospel, to persist in ministry and to trust that even if opposition seems big, even if results seem minimal, God is at work and over the long haul, the harvest will blow us away. The harvest will surprise us. We can't allow ourselves to get discouraged. Our efforts are not in vain. God will work through us as we persevere. Let's look now at verse 10. And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said, to, he said to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see but not perceive, and may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. Now why did Jesus teach in parables? In simple, a parable is a story that communicated spiritual truth. And often we think that Jesus did this primarily as a way of illustrating his teaching, of making his teaching clearer, making it easier to understand. And there's definitely some truth to this. The parables Jesus told, just like this one, made use of everyday scenes and everyday experiences in Israel in those days. And the stories then would have resonated with the people hearing them. The parables would have been memorable. And then the lessons from those parables 
would also have been memorable. And, they would, and um, the meaning they were communicating would have really hit home with the hearers. But in another sense, as our passage here makes clear, Jesus actually told parables to almost hide or veil what he was teaching. To hide or veil what he was teaching from people who were not coming to him in faith. Remember our context again. I'm often going back and, and reminding you guys of ground we've covered because it helps us in, the, in understanding the text we're in at the given time. And the same is true here. In, uh, as we talked about what we've already covered in Mark, the Pharisees and the scribes right, have been taking what Jesus was plainly teaching and they were twisting it. They were refusing to accept what he was saying. They were refusing to accept him for who he was. And in Mark 3, we saw that they were intently watching Jesus, looking for an opportunity to catch him in his words, to be able to accuse him of something. They were trying to catch him doing or saying something that they could use to get him in trouble, that they could use to stir the pot. So, as that, those sort of responses escalate, Jesus gets to the point where he decides to start teaching now in a way that will still communicate truth for those who are truly listening, for those who are truly coming to him in faith with a sincere desire to know him and learn from him and follow him, but in a way that will also frustrate those who are just coming to him to catch him and criticize him, accuse him and cause trouble. Basically, Jesus' Jesus's approach is, is like this. Okay? So you want to find a way to take my words and accuse me of working for Satan or of trying to overthrow the Romans. Let me tell you a story about a farmer sowing seeds. Right? They're sitting there waiting for their opportunity to catch him. And now they're like, what is this? What am I supposed to do with a story about a farmer sowing seeds? I, I can't cause any trouble with that. This is just random, right? But, of course, these parables are also packed with spiritual truth. Spiritual truth that is still there for those with ears to hear those who are truly coming to Jesus in faith. Notice in verse 3, as Jesus begins the parable, he says, listen, listen, listen carefully, pay attention. And in verse 9, he says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear, let him hear. Guys, these are, these are our, our clear indicators. This is not just a story about a farmer sowing seed. Pay attention. Listen. There's more to the story than you might first think. Jesus is making it clear for those who are truly listening in faith 
If you are really here for my teaching, if you really want to understand, I invite you to understand. I'm still teaching. Pay attention with a heart of faith and a desire to learn, and you will understand. Which is not to say that Jesus never had to explain his parables. He did. He often did. But even as he explains the parables, oftentimes what we also see is an exhortation to his followers to really engage their minds and try to understand the parable itself. He's willing to explain, but he also is often challenging his hearers that they should be able to understand. They should. They shouldn't always need the explanation. If they're really listening, they should be able to, to get the truth in the parable. See, parables are not easy to understand in the sense that they, they do require us to pay attention. They do require us to really think. But they can be understood by those who listen to them with a heart of faith, with a heart that recognizes Jesus for who he is and a desire to learn from him and follow him. Now let's look a little bit closer at verses 11 and 12. This is a very difficult couple of verses to understand. It says in verse 11, And he said to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see but not perceive may indeed hear, but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. So Jesus makes clear here, to his twelve and a few others with the twelve, his twelve disciples and a few other followers who are, are clearly, genuinely wanting to learn from Jesus, come aside, let me explain the parable to you. Let me make sure you understand. I'm letting you in on the secret of the kingdom. I'm letting you in on the true meaning behind this parable. But for those outside, for the, for the general crowd, for the masses, all they're going to get is the parable itself. And why is that? Well... <laughs> This passage almost sounds like Jesus doesn't want them to respond in saving faith. But that would not match with all we've seen of why he came. Jesus, after all, came to seek and to save the lost. He didn't come for the righteous. He came for sinners. This quote, um, this, uh, sorry, verse uh, verse 12 is a quote from Isaiah chapter 8 when the prophet Isaiah was commissioned to preach to a very rebellious people who were under God's judgment. And at least part of what Isaiah's preaching did, at least part of Isaiah's mission, was to actually magnify their judgment when they continued to stubbornly reject God's word. That's what's happening here. The religious leaders have already been rejecting Jesus. 
He's been stating things very, very clearly. He's been doing miracles that authenticate his claims. He's been telling and showing who he is. That they've rejected him as the Messiah and King. And so now he's continuing to preach the truth. But now it's veiled in parables. Now it's veiled. And if they continue to reject him, they'll be heaping more and more judgment on themselves. The parables themselves actually are a judgment of sorts on them. In that the truth of Jesus is still there, but now it's somewhat hidden. They brought this on themselves, though. They brought it on themselves because of their stubborn unbelief. Jesus is basically saying, if you will proudly and stubbornly obscure and reject my plain teaching of who I am, I'll give you parables that you're only going to understand with humility and sincere faith and a desire to obey. But it's important, brothers and sisters, it's important to also see here that the way of forgiveness is still being presented to the masses. Jesus is still presenting who he is to anyone who will have ears to hear. He's still presenting himself to anyone who will be humble and receive him in faith. But what about election? What about the sovereignty of God in salvation? I know some of you wrestle with these uh, big uh, theological topics. And some of you might be wondering if this, pas- if this is one passage that proves that only those people who God has elected Only they will respond to him in faith. And it does point to that truth. Um, There's no doubt about that. But I want to point out something very important here. Because oftentimes what people try to do with election is get themselves off the hook. The Bible does teach that we, as Ephesians 2 puts it, are dead in our sin and trespasses. The Bible is very clear that we are spiritually lifeless, and that God must open our blind eyes to see, and give a, give us, take our heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh. We must be made alive by God if we're going to respond to Him in faith. But the Bible never teaches that truth in a way that allows people to get themselves off the hook and make excuses. The Bible always calls sinners to repentance and faith. And that is exactly what Jesus does here. He doesn't say, oh, some of you are just not going to understand. Some of you are just not going to accept me. What he says instead is, listen, hear. If you have ears to hear, respond. That's Jesus' command to us. And it's our responsibility. But I hope, I hope there's nobody out here who's thinking, oh, well, you know, maybe I'm one of those people who God just hasn't elected, so it's not my fault. 
I, I can't respond in faith. You must respond in faith. Jesus is the Savior. Jesus is God. And Jesus calls you to faith. Amen? Okay. Lastly, let's look at verses 13 and following. And he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? See, Jesus now basically gives, he explains this parable, but he uses this parable also to give some instruction on how to listen to his parables in general. Um, one scholar described this parable as a parable on how to listen to parables. Okay. Indeed, it's instruction on how to listen to any of Jesus' teaching. It's instruction on how to respond to Jesus. Essentially, we need to, our starting point is to see Jesus for whom he is, which means valuing him supremely, and therefore valuing and responding to his word. But let's look more closely as Jesus walks us through this parable and unpacks us. Verse 14. The sower sows the word. Okay. We already talked about this, but here Jesus makes it very clear that that's exactly what he's talking about. The sower sows the word. The seeds the sower is sowing, it's the word of God. It's the truth. Biblical truth. Whether that be truth that Jesus was sharing about himself or that Mark is sharing and writing this gospel or that a preacher might share in a sermon even as I'm doing now or as we share the truth in evangelism with others. The sower sows the word. Verse 15. And these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. So here's the first example of how not to listen. And my friends, it's important to realize, I was really struck by this. Spiritual warfare is happening in this place every time we gather. Right? Every time you're hearing God's word, there's the possibility of, as this verse tells us here, Satan coming and taking away the word that is sown. Distractions are not just distractions. Distractions can have eternal significance. If you're sitting here bored, thinking about other things, distracted, daydreaming, focusing in and out, nodding off a little bit, fight to pay attention, engage your mind. This is the Word of God. If the sermon goes in one ear and out the other, 
that seed does not take root. For the sermon to have an impact on your life, you have to pay attention and hear. Verse 16. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground. The ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves. But endure for a while. Then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And this refers to people who do have some interest in Jesus, some excitement in Him even. But when being a Christian begins to mean that they're starting to become unpopular, when people they value begin to distance themselves because they don't appreciate their newfound faith, then we begin to see how much they really value Jesus. Then it's revealed if they value Jesus enough to make sacrifices for Him. When their friends tease them about no longer wanting to watch certain movies, or tell certain jokes, or participate in certain worldly things. And now time with your long-time friend starts feeling awkward, The connection just isn't there like it used to be. When your family gets upset with you because you no longer want to be part of the ZCC church you grew up in. When you say no, you can't participate in this ancestral ritual. When they tell you very clearly that if things don't go well for the family, we know whose fault it is, right? When your co-workers begin to roll their eyes at you because you won't join them in cutting corners and being dishonest about something at work. Right? Or your fellow students are frustrated with you because this dodgy paper that's circling around that you're using to study with, right? You're hesitant about using it and they just want to study and do well on the test. Ah, you know. Why do you have to be like that? Guys, this is what it really comes down to. Do you value Jesus more than anyone else? Are you willing to follow Jesus when it costs you? Every one of these situations I just described is genuinely hard. Genuinely hard. But following Jesus is worth it. Persevering in following Jesus is well worth it, even if these relationships begin to suffer and fall away. And what Jesus is telling us here is, look, if you want to properly understand my word, if you want to properly respond to my word, you've got to start off being somebody who recognizes that I'm worth sacrificing for. I'm worth sacrificing for. Verse 18. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word. But the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desire of other things enter in and choke the word. And it proves unfruitful. 
What are the cares of the world? Very understandable things like how am I going to pay rent? How am I going to put food on the table? How am I going to pass this exam? How am I going to finish this degree? I'm only two years in and I'm dead already, right? Sorry, guys. Some of you have, some of you have too long to go. I'm sorry, man. Okay. How am I going to keep my spouse happy and save my marriage? How am I going to resolve this growing tension between me and my kid? This is real life. And very easily, these very understandable concerns can become so big to us that they're just, they're all we think about. They consume us. The deceitfulness of riches. Believing that if you could just make more money, all your problems would go away. If you could be rich, then you'd be happy. So when it comes down to it, right? If, it, if you had to choose, you pursue riches over Jesus. That might be through dishonesty or theft or corruption. It might be through very clear things like that, but it might be through more subtle things. The way you pursue your career in climbing the corporate ladder, it just consumes all your thinking, all your energy, all your time, so that Jesus becomes no more than a distant afterthought. My friends, money promises a lot, but it doesn't deliver. It doesn't deliver. There's many very unhappy rich people in this world. Even, very, even insightful unbelievers will tell you that you can't buy happiness, right? You've heard that phrase? You can't buy happiness. And even if you could buy some measure of happiness, you can't take that Porsche with you when you die. You can't. Jesus tells us, What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Desires for other things. Maybe, ladies, it's the handsome man who happens to be another man's husband. Maybe it's pursuing pleasure in drunkenness or drugs. Maybe it's the temptation to abdicate responsibilities God's given you as a husband and father to just be able to check out and live the carefree life of a single person. Some sense that life would be more fulfilling in disobedience to Jesus than it would be in obedience to Him. Believing that true joy is not found in following Jesus, but somewhere else. So, Jesus makes clear here again. If you want to understand my teaching, truly, if you want to benefit from it, the starting point is you need to realize that there's more joy, more pleasure, more fulfillment, to be found in me than in anything else. 
Verse 20 now gives us a picture of how we should listen. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruits thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. Hear the word. Hear the word. Now we're not just talking here about whether you hear the sounds coming out of my mouth. We're talking about, are you listening? Are you listening? As Proverbs puts it, incline your ear, right? There's an intentionality to understand and to learn. There's effort. There's engagement. You hear the word and you accept it. Paul thanks God in 1 Thessalonians that the, Thess- that the Thessalonians, as he puts it, receive the word of God which you've heard from us, not as the word of men, but as it really is, the word of God. Do you hear the teaching of Jesus as what it really is, the word of God? My friends, our world likes to tell us that Jesus was a great teacher and philosopher and just good, kind person. He was far more than that. If you really want to understand his teaching, you have to start off by embracing him in faith as Messiah and King and God. He was not just another man, not even a great one. He was God, very God. And if you embrace who Jesus is, you welcome his teaching as authoritative and binding and valuable. And then lastly, we see here, right? We hear the word, accept it, and bear fruit. And bear fruit. In other words, we need to be listening with an intention to obey We receive God's word not to analyze it, talk about it, memorize it. Okay, we've done some memorizing here. Memorizing is good if you intend to take that word and live by it. Okay? If you memorize just to impress yourself or other people with the fact that you can memorize it, the fact that you can say it, that's empty and pointless. What does the scripture tell us? Don't just be hearers of the word, be doers of the word. If this is the word of God, we can't just say, okay, that's nice. I know it now. It is binding on us. We must obey it. We receive God's word to obey it. That, my friends, is good soil for the seed of God's word to take root and bear fruit. Hearts that recognize Jesus as who he is and that therefore are eager to learn from him, to embrace what he says as the very words of God and eager to put into practice what he calls us to. That's how we must listen. That's how we must approach Jesus. With hearts that embrace him, value him, and are eager to obey. Let's take this encouragement too from this parable. Right? When we do respond to Jesus as we should, what does this parable tell us? 
again, we're looking at this extraordinary harvest. The fruit God brings about in and through our lives will often be incredibly surprising. 30, 60, 100 fold. That's what God does in the lives of people who respond to Him in faith. May God give us ears to hear and bless us with wonderful fruitness, fruit, fruitfulness for His glory. Amen. All right, we're um, going to spend some time in communion now. And uh, for.